Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Sarah Mills, Senior Project Manager at the Center for Local, State, and Urban Policy at the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy. Sarah and colleagues recently published a study looking at how people perceive the positive and negative impacts of wind energy development. We'll talk about what the study found, what the implications are for state and local planning, and what this might mean for the fast-growing industry of wind energy in the United States. Stay with us. Sarah Mills, my friend and colleague from the University of Michigan, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. So Sarah, before we start to talk about your work on wind energy and the local perceptions of wind energy, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in energy and the environment and wind energy in particular? Uh, Completely by accident. I came back to get my PhD in farmland preservation, and I had no idea what that was going to look like. And we were driving um, up to my in-law's cottage up north in Michigan and drove through Michigan's biggest wind farm. And I Googled it, and it turns out that the planners were talking about it as farmland preservation. Wind energy is farmland preservation. So that became my dissertation. Um, and since then, I kind of got hooked in trying to understand what impacts wind energy has on farming communities. That's so interesting. Where was that? Where is that wind farm? So Gratiot County, um, kind of the middle of the state. Okay, got it. So um Sarah, your research is relevant for all sorts of reasons, um, but perhaps one of the biggest is, you know, wind energy is growing rapidly across the United States. It's uh, now accounting for something like 7% of U.S. net generation, uh, according to the latest data I saw on EIA. And so with all this wind development happening around the United States, can you give us kind of a broad overview on some of the geographic and demographic characteristics of where uh, these projects are happening, sort of what the host communities tend to look like? And then in broad strokes, what are some of the positives and negatives that host communities experience when wind development happens uh, in, in those communities? Sure. So the first question part was about the geographical and kind of demographic <laughs> spread. Um, so outside of the offshore wind turbines in Rhode Island, um, all of our development is on land, 95% or greater, depending on whose statistics you look at, are in rural communities, right? We put wind turbines where there aren't tons of people around or tend to. Um, Most of that wind development is in what I call the wind belt, running from Texas through to the Dakotas. Um, You you know, Texas has a quarter about of the U.S. um, wind capacity in terms of built capacity. Um, Iowa and Kansas are close, or, you know, they each make up about 10%. Um, but but it's not just the wind belt where we have wind farms. So there's some wind development in, you know, New England. New York has a decent amount. Um, certainly throughout the Great Lakes, which is where I've focused. California, um, Oregon, um, all of those kind of places. But largely we're putting wind turbines in rural communities. So the second part was about benefits and drawbacks. Yeah, just in broad strokes or general terms. Sure. So... Largely, I mean, my research has been looking at wind energy as economic development, right? It is um, wind turbines bring with them 
payments to landowners who have those turbines on their property, and in some places, even payments to neighbors um, who might have to look at the turbines. Um, and in most states, wind developers also pay property taxes that stay at the local level. So this is really an economic development opportunity for these communities. In terms of some of the challenges, it's, it's really a aesthetic challenge, right? It's a change to the scenery. Modern turbines are 500. Now we're seeing onshore turbines that are 600 feet tall from ground to the tip of the blade. And so you can see these turbines from miles around and something that is often not talked about, but you can see them from even farther um, at night because the blinking red lights that the FAA requires, right. you're not supposed Post, that's not supposed to blend into the landscape. So, you you know, 20 miles away, you might be able to see these wind farms. Right. And for people living in rural communities, I imagine that that's a change. It is a change. Yeah. And so a lot of the attitudes that we see towards turbines depend, well, at least this is what I've been working on, um, say that, you know, why you live in that community and how you feel about that landscape can determine whether this is an okay change that you're willing to deal with or this is not at all okay. So, you know, this isn't necessarily in the paper, so I'll talk about it now. <laughs> Farmers tend to see their land as productive landscapes, right? And wind is just another way to make money off their land. Just like other, you know, there's lots of things in agriculture that are noisy or smelly. And you just learn to deal with it because that's how you make money off your land. Um, people that are living in these landscapes because they want the views, because they want to enjoy the peace and quiet, Um tend to view that change to the landscape much more negatively. With some of that background in place, let's get into a paper you published recently in the journal Land Use Policy. The name of the paper is Exploring Landowners' Post-Construction Changes in Perceptions of Wind Energy in Michigan. And you published the paper with Douglas Bissett and Hannah Smith, uh, your colleagues at Michigan State and Michigan, respectively. So um, the paper starts off exploring something that you refer to as a U-shaped curve with regard to people's acceptance of wind energy projects. Can you describe what that U-shaped curve is and what empirical evidence might underlie it or whether there is empirical evidence that, that underlies it? Sure. So the theory is that attitudes about wind energy, acceptance of wind energy is really high in the American public, you know, European public at large. But once a wind project is proposed for one's own community, attitudes dip. Um, this is not, it, uh, so much of the research says this is not nimbyism. This is people coming to terms with what trade-offs they're going to be making in that community. What, you know, what the specific impacts are going to be. Um, and the U-shaped curve says that once a wind farm is built, that attitudes return to those high pre-construction levels. So is the idea that the negative expectations that people have don't materialize? Exactly. Yeah. That, you know, that that you're anticipating lots of negative changes. And then when it at the end of the day, the, those may not come to fruition, um, attitudes might return. Or also that you just learn to live with it, that it just becomes part of your landscape and blends in at some point. And so... Um, so it's not as worrisome as it may have been during the planning phase. So this U-shape idea, how do you uh, think about it and go about testing it in the paper? Right. So we're really looking at the right arm of the U after projects have already been built. So um, big picture, we sent the same survey questions to the same individuals 
two and a half years apart from each other. Um, but both of these surveys were sent once the wind farm had already been built. So some of the projects were built in 2008, some in 2012. The surveys went out in 2014 and um, halfway through 2016. So what we're trying to test is after you've been living with turbines for two years or six years, um, do your attitudes stabilize or do we continue to like see either increase in attitudes or again, just stabilization. Okay. So you're measuring people's attitudes about these wind projects uh, after they've been living with them for, for some period of time. Where in Michigan did, um, did these surveys go out? So they went out um, in the thumb again, pull out your hand. (laughs) So they went out in Huron County, three wind parks in Huron County um, and one wind farm. That's kind of, well, it's in the northwest section of the Lower Peninsula. Um, and Huron County's in the thumb, right? Tip of the thumb, exactly. That um, most it has the most wind development of any county in the state of Michigan. Great, got it. So you you sent out these surveys, and uh, about how many people did you survey and get responses from? So the survey went out to everybody who owned farmland in those communities. So it went out to about a thousand people. We had to, in order to be included in the data, you had to respond to both surveys. And so um, that that population is 520. And I remember from the paper, you had really high response rates from that survey, right? In the first survey in particular, we had over 70% response rate. The second survey had 53% response rate. So yeah, the the secret, I thought the first time around, the secret was a $2 bill. I've subsequently written a little methodology paper showing that it's not, there's not a $2 bill effect. Um, what it was is sending a survey to farmers in February. There's not much else going on in those communities, at least not in Michigan. Right. That's so interesting. Is that because it doesn't coincide with planting or harvesting? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Oh, man. For, for someone who's never lived on uh, lived in a rural community or worked on a farm, that would not be intuitive at all, but it makes sense. <laughs> so, Sarah, what are some of the main findings uh, from the paper? So... If you look at the data in aggregate, you put all 520 people together, we don't see much of a change in attitudes about wind energy from 2014 to 2016. We see about half of the people have attitudes that are, they answered the survey exactly the same. Um, About a quarter, um, they believe that wind has more negative impacts and a quarter say wind has less negative impacts. So what we were doing, and I think where our innovation is, is taking those data and breaking it down by two different um, considerations that the social acceptance of energy systems literature is talking about. One is the idea of direct payment. So we broke the data based on whether the respondent was paid by the wind developer or not. And the other thing is how they felt about the planning process and process fairness. Procedural justice is what the literature calls it. This is where you start to see differences, particularly when you talk about procedural justice. So people who say that the process of citing the wind farms was fair, their attitudes in 2014 start out a little bit more positive towards wind energy. And over time, those attitudes either stay the same or they continue to improve. The people who think that the planning process was unfair start out again with attitudes that are a little more negative, though, though still overall generally positive. But over time, their attitudes sour effectively. They become 
more bothered by the noise, the visual impacts. They're more likely to talk about the negative impacts um, of wind. So can you, is this a causal relationship? Uh, does Does the model tell you whether people perceive the process to be unfair because they don't particularly like the uh, the wind project or vice versa or is this more of a um, a sort of correlational uh, relationship it's not necessarily a causal model that we run um, the fact that we're finding a difference in their attitudes in 2014 right and that a an even widening difference in 2016 suggests I think that you know that it's something about their attitudes about the planning process but it's that's not something that we specifically test. Okay, got it. So, uh, but you also find a relationship between uh, support for the project and whether or not people are receiving financial compensation for the project in one way or another, right? Exactly. And when we put the two together in a regression model, um, in some situations, the the payment, whether or not you're receiving the payment is important. But But what's really driving that model is attitudes about process fairness. Can you tell us a little bit about the specific questions that you ask people? So, you know, how do you judge their attitudes about the benefits of living uh, near wind development? How, how do you judge their attitudes about the downsides? And uh, yeah, just give us some specifics about the, the questions that you ask people. Yeah. So we in, we asked about four positive um, benefits. We turned them in the paper. So that was about um, whether wind turbines create jobs, whether they provide revenues for landowners. Um, whether they um, help preserve rural lands, coming back to that farmland preservation (laughs) uh, idea, um, and whether or not they help limit climate change. What's really interesting is that there's agreement in both groups for those first three statements, but in in the communities where wind farms are cited in Michigan, there's overall net disagreement that wind turbines help limit climate change. So that's something we could put a pin into if we want to come back to that. Yeah, definitely. It's fascinating. In terms of the negative impacts, we asked um, six questions about this. So whether wind turbines are ugly, effectively, whether they uh, produce visual or aesthetic problems, whether they create noise pollution, um, whether they disrupt bird migration, disrupt local weather patterns, reduce nearby property values, or cause human health problems. Notably, there is net disagreement with all of those statements when you look at it in aggregate. So most people in these communities don't think that these negative things are happening. But again, when you separate out the groups, it's just the those people who perceive the process as fair are more likely to disagree with those negative statements. That makes sense. That does make sense. So that's really helpful to, to get a sense of what you're finding or some of the key takeaways from the paper. Um, let's shift over and think, uh, talk a little bit about uh, policy implications of this work. So, um, so it's clear from the results that the planning process for project siting for wind is really important. Uh, are there examples that you can point to or that, that come to mind uh, where public policies at the state or local level have been particularly successful in encouraging these types of inclusing, uh, inclusive planning processes? And along the same lines, are there? do you think it's appropriate for public policy to intervene here? Or is this the sort of thing that uh, you know private contracts and uh, the private sector will be able to essentially take care of on its own? Hmm. Okay. Let's, I'll talk for the first one first. Okay. Remind me what the second one is in just a minute. All right. So in terms of what the 
what's a good process versus a bad process? Like, what does the public policy look like? What is so interesting is in this wind farm, I was looking, or in this study, we were looking at 10 different communities. One of them is completely unzoned. There is, there is no planning process that the, that the wind developer has to go through. And yet their attitudes about fairness weren't any necessarily different than the other places. So we talk in the literature about procedural justice. Um, and I think it's mixing both how, like what the actual process is on the books, how the local officials, whether it's the planning commission or county board members, how they approach the process, like what their deliberation looks like, how how much are they publicly showing people, hey, you came and talked at this public hearing, I hear you and I'm going to now quiz the developer on that. Um, and also so many intangibles about how the wind developer acts. I mean, some of the, the anecdotes that I have from my research are about um, confidentiality terms within lease agreements. Like if you're told that you're not supposed to talk to your neighbor about what's in your lease agreement, like that, that's a strike against you, your, you know, the developer as being seen as acting openly and transparently. I do think that there's a place for public policy to be able to make clear what that process is and provide as much opportunity um, for public comment as possible. But I also think it's more how how policymakers act. Do they, again, seriously deliberate what what the concerns are of their community um, and and take their concerns seriously? The second part of your question was, do we need mark do we need intervention, policy intervention, or is that where the market's taking us? Right. So I think that it's not just our research that is finding that process is important. And like and I'm sorry, I'm gonna back up and say it's not just the process again, it's procedural justice, right? This, this how the developer acts, there's lots of literature out there showing that. What ours is, you know, I think the innovation of this study is showing that it matters not just during the planning process itself, when you're trying to figure out if this community is going to accept a wind farm or not, but it has impacts that go well down the road that, you know, if you, if you carry out an unfair process, you behave you know, poorly, effectively, that that can just make those residents more and more upset by that project. So that's the innovation here. I think developers are coming to realize that it's really important to gain social acceptance and act openly and transparently. But I could be honest, it's hard in the moment, right? I mean, this sometimes, you know, public process can mean that the community decides they don't want that wind farm there. And so there's a risk associated with that. And I know that there's a lot of discussion about like, when do you start that process? When do you announce to, you know, tell the community that you're interested in citing a project after you already have about half the land leased, right? After you apply for your FAA permits, I would suggest that's way too late, by the way. <laughs> um, like there's mixed reactions, I think, among the developer community. Yeah, this is so interesting, and uh, there there are all these analogs that come to mind with uh, with what you're saying and the, some of the oil and gas issues that I've 
you know, done research on. And we had Matt Lapore, the former director of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, on the show a few weeks back. And, you know, we talked about some of these same issues. And the one that really comes to mind is the idea that developers often move in and start to lease land and plan their project well in advance of the community even being aware that the project is sort of on the table. And so are there is there a way around that for project developers or do, you know do they lose a competitive advantage by uh, you know starting these inclusive planning processes at the very outset? <laughs> yeah. So um definitely. I mean some developers have been working or helping to inform landowner coalitions, right? Just like, I think that there are landowner coalitions that form over oil and gas. Yes. Just this week, I was hearing about two different groups in Michigan where there are landowner coalitions forming around wind. And in one project, a project that actually just got approved, this, you know, the um, the developer approached uh, some of the large landowners early and said, we want to you know, we're thinking about your area for a wind farm. And the the landowner said, uh, well, we got to talk to our neighbors and think about this. And so they formed this little coalition and they effectively decided the lease terms. They said, this is what we want our lease to look like because they were setting those terms, right? And, and, and why that's important in wind is, especially in the state of Michigan, is that um, some, like the traditional business model is you only pay people with turbines on their property. Um, we wind has learned a little bit from oil and gas and the pooling arrangements. And so some wind developers are paying neighbors as well, taking that, you know, effectively the same amount of money and just sharing it with more individuals. And so that was something that this landowner coalition was able to discuss amongst themselves. Like what, how do we, how do we want to share out these revenues? And just to, to, to put a pin in that, uh, it's so interesting because the, so what you're talking about is not only do the landowners on whose land, the wind turbines are sited, are paid by the company, but also uh, people who live on adjacent land uh, to help you know mitigate some of the negative impacts that they might experience. Exactly. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, so, not all wind developers, though, are you know willing to do that or are in a situation where there are residents who are gung ho to do such a thing. I mean, if I could, if I could wave my magic wand, right? I would have communities plan first. Determine before the wind developer comes in whether or not this economic development opportunity fits with their community goals. Because, you know, if, if what they want to do is increase tourism in their community, there is definitely like some people who will talk about wind tourism, but at least in Michigan, our idea of pure Michigan tourism <laughs> um, doesn't necessarily involve wind turbines on the horizon. And and so you might think twice about whether, you know, if, you're, if your goal is increasing tourism, whether wind fits in that vision. Yeah. If your goal is going all in on agriculture, like this is, you know, not this study, the, the earlier studies I've done finds that this is a really good thing for farmers. And so it's so much easier, though, in my mind, and rational to have those conversations before there's a developer knocking at your door. Not all communities are proactive, though, in planning. They tend to be much more reactive, in part because they may not have the resources to do that planning um, or don't want to open a can of worms, right? Because <laughs> these these discussions can be contentious. And so um, I think this is a consideration that I know developers need to take into account 
what do we do if there's if there's no law on the books? Do we start planning and then hope that there are ordinances put in place that are conducive to us building our project? Or do we wait for them to sort out on their own? Yeah. And so, so, so one final analogy that uh, this brings to mind when it comes to wind and oil and gas is the idea of state versus local control. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate in a variety of states uh, in the oil and gas world about um, how much control should states have? How much control should locals have? Uh, you know, all sorts of lawsuits uh, to that effect. So can you talk a little bit about, um, in the context of wind development, what types of policies state governments might be thinking about and implementing uh, to sort of set a level playing field and just what the dynamics are between uh, states and locals in the context of wind development? Yeah. So. Um, in terms of how the states handle siting, it um, where in oil and gas there's much more state control, I think, than there is for wind energy. So there's there's a, a about a dozen states that do have the ultimate say on siting for wind, but most places leave it up to local governments. Um, the places where it's left up to local governments, um, sometimes the state will give parameters or like a model ordinance so that they have something to start with. Um, that 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 local governments can pick up or not. Um, from a planner's perspective, like it may planners love the idea of regional planning or state level planning, right? That's the rational way to do things. And especially when you have a resource like wind, which is place specific. You know, what do you do if if the windiest places in your state don't want to site wind projects, and you have a renewable portfolio standard that you have to meet, right? Right. But at the same point, we can we see that state level siting isn't always good, even for the wind industry. Like Ohio has state level siting, and they have such a large setback distance now that you cannot site projects in the state of Ohio. So, so state level siting does not necessarily mean like you're going to overcome local opposition. And you can also see situations where taking over um, the siting process at the state level leads to huge pushback from local governments. This has happened in Ontario, you know. Um, and so I think that the state can help give some parameters, but I'm I'm still of the mind that, that there's going to be enough communities that see wind as an opportunity that as long as they are given the option to proactively plan before it becomes super controversial because there's an active table or discuss, uh, proposal on the table, I, I think that there's still opportunity there. Right. That makes sense. And, um, and wow, I wish I could ask you so many more questions, but, uh, but, but I don't want to go over time too much. And so, so I want to close out with the question that we ask everyone uh, who joins us here on Resources Radio, which is that, uh, what is uh, on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? What are you reading these days, uh, or watching or listening to that you think is interesting and that you think our, uh, our listeners would enjoy? I'm going to break a rule, and it's not related to energy and the environment at all, but I think that everyone who cares about renewable energy, particularly in the Midwest, needs to read it. Uh, It is Kathy Kramer, uh, The Politics of Resentment. So she is a political scientist at the University of Wisconsin and effectively set out, she went to like coffee shops and gas stations across rural Wisconsin to understand how they feel about government and... um, priorities effectively. What I think is so interesting is, and what she finds, as the title suggests, is that there's this resentment that the state government is setting policy um, and 
urban people are driving policy that is really having effects in rural communities. The reason that I think it's really important now is that after the elections in November, there was so much talk about this blue wave of governors sweeping the Midwest and how this was going to be great for climate policy. And there's lots of talk about reviving, you know, a Midwest cap and trade or what you know, 100 percent renewable energy portfolio standards. And these blue wave governors are going to need to cite those projects in the rural communities. And it's really important to understand how those rural communities feel about the policies. And I, I can tell you, like, in, at least in the rural communities in Michigan that I've spent most of the time, like, an, a renewable portfolio standard is seen as a strike against a project. Even if they would otherwise be supportive of it, they see the RPS as, as proof, I'm putting this in air quotes, right, <laughs> as proof that that wind energy needs a state mandate, that it doesn't pay for itself, that it needs the government to prop it up. And and so if you haven't read The Politics of Resentment, it, it, there's not one word in it about energy and the environment, but it is so helpful to understand the kind of communities where we're putting energy infrastructure. Yeah, that is such a great recommendation. So, uh, so Sarah Mills, thank you so much for that recommendation. Thanks for sharing uh, the results of your recent paper. And thanks for uh, helping us understand uh, some of the issues related to wind energy development in communities across America. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think. So please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.